talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. This is Hamilton Today. It is a beautiful Thursday in July and a summer afternoon. And what could be better? I mean, up at the cottage, yeah. But, you know, if you're around here, what could be better than this? Nothing is the answer. Glad you're with us. Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson today. Today is the opening round of the British Open, the legendary historic golf tournament, which, uh, I mean, usually this is all just, you know, happiness. Everyone gets along and thinks about the history of the game and everything else. Um, Not quite that feeling this time. And the reason is, of course, that there is this split-off golf tour called Live Golf, which is part of it, but also because in the lead-up to the British Open this week, Tiger had been pretty quiet about this offshoot, uh, decided to jump in. He was asked about it and decided to answer. And he pulled no punches and essentially said he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand why a bunch of people would try to, in his words, essentially take big money and not really have to work for it and why you would not want to have to grind it out to get to the top and accomplish these things. And, and it was, it was pretty, it was pretty direct and coming from the mouth of that particular person, I think it carried an awful lot of weight. Uh, Gary McKay is a longtime golf writer. He is also the winner of the Dick Grimm award from golf Canada this year as golfer golf writer of the year. He joins us now, Gary, how are you today? Not bad, Scott. And you, I am. Well, look, I'm probably better than some of the, took aim at here especially greg norman i you know in golf i'm always surprised anytime a golfer criticizes another golfer because it really that, that just doesn't happen very often i mean every once in a while but it's really a very gentlemanly or w- gentlewomanly uh sport where that just doesn't happen this was this was kind of startling to see tiger woods tee off a little bit pardon the pun on greg norman uh, it wasn't, it wasn't. I mean, it was that he did it. Um, he did it in a somewhat gentlemanly way, saying, I just don't understand this. I mean, you know, he didn't call them idiots. <laughs> uh, but he said, you know, what are they thinking? And here's all the reasons I don't think it's a good idea. And I, I listened to it. I, I read what he wrote. And I totally agree with what he said, especially the part where he said, Everybody that I've known, from Jack Nicklaus to Arnold Palmer to the current day guys, you gear everything towards the majors. And if you can't play in the majors, what have you got? I mean, you, you're, just, you're just playing for money, and some would argue blood money. Um, and so there's no incentive to practice. There's no incentive to try and get better. Um, and your game just isn't going to be the same. And I totally agree with that. Well, okay, there's a couple things there I want to ask you about. The first one, and this has been the real issue here. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. It's been, for people who aren't necessarily diehard golf fans, it's been the real issue. And that is, as you say, the blood money. This is this is money of questionable origin. And, you know, I think back, Gary, to, what when was it, the early 80s with, remember, um, with the apartheid concerts or whatever in South Africa, and those who decided to go and play in South Africa were blacklisted, essentially, in a lot of ways. This kind of feels like a similar thing, that if you're going to go and do this, you better expect that if this thing doesn't work out particularly well, or if the money dries up, you may be sitting there on an island with no one to come and bail you out, because there's people not happy about this. Well, including a number of the sponsors of the individual players. 
Some have stuck with their players, but some of the sponsors just like jumped off board right away. I mean, including RBC, um, which uh, basically within hours dumped uh, dumped their their two players, Dustin Johnson and Graham McDowell, who left. I mean, they didn't hesitate to say thanks, guys. See you later. Uh, and and there are other sponsors that are are dumping their players, but but I mean most of them are saying, hey, we're getting our millions regardless, so we don't care. Which I which is it a fair question though in sport? Is it a fair question though when these guys go to a tournament or show up? Some of them at the British Open. Dustin Johnson is playing here. Is it a fair question to say are you comfortable accepting this money? Oh, absolutely, it's fair to ask, but they won't answer it. Because they because they haven't so far, I haven't heard any of them say, you know, oh yeah, I know it's blood money, but uh, I will accept it, or or no, I don't think it's blood money. The the, the surprise to me with this whole thing was, uh, I could have seen one or two of these people mostly a part of the. You know, if you haven't made a lot of money in your career and they come and they say, hey, we're going to guarantee you millions of dollars. Honestly, you know, as much as it may be blood money, the temptation, we're all human. The temptation might have been there, Gary. But and maybe if you're at the very, very, very top, like Dustin Johnson, and they're going to pay you just an obscene amount of money and you can now ride into the sunset and never have to worry again. Again, maybe I could see. But there's those guys in the middle that I just, that's the ones I just don't understand. I really don't get it. Because they could have made a ton of money still on the PGA Tour. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, it's funny. If you look at the the roster of the Live Tour, you've got the Dustin Johnsons, the Patrick Reeds, Brandon Grace, uh, Kepka, uh, DeChambeau. There are some good players there. And then you've got some players that are sort of past their prime, you know, or are getting there, the Garcias, Polters, Westwoods, even Mickelson. And then there's a bunch of guys that you've never heard of, a lot of guys you've never heard of, but some of them are really good up-and-comers. Sam Horsfield, from, who plays the DP World Tour, uh, the, the old European Tour, he's a real up-and-comer and is, is the type of player that you were just talking about, that if he, you know, played, eventually played the PJ Tour, probably would have made himself a lot of money. Yeah, that I don't get. And, and uh, you know, again, I, I, I try to always, when I'm looking at these things, and I don't always succeed at it, I try to say, okay, position, what would I do? If they came to me and said, you know, here's $20 million, what would you do? And it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing to answer, but for that very point you just said, Gary, is that if you're a young guy who's got talent, whether it's winnings or whether it's endorsements, you were not going to go hungry. You were going to make a lot of money as a as a player on the PGA Tour. Even the bottom guys on the PGA Tour who have their tour cards still make a good living. Yeah, and I agree. So you look at those young players, and, and uh, it, it's unfair to say this in a way because I don't know each individual. But what was their upbringing? Because and, and, integrity has to come into this at some point. Knowing, again, where this money is coming from. Yeah, and, and I think that this is, uh, I think if the, I truly believe that if the players who have made this jump think that they're just going to ride this out for the first few events and the questions are going to stop, I think they're wrong. And I think especially they all have to hope, I think, that there are no stories that come out of that part of the world about human, horrible human rights issues because then... 
you're you are now indelibly attached to this. You you will not be able to extract yourself from that story if we find out some horrible thing that's happening over there. You just won't. It'll be all. It'll always be part of your story. Yeah, and and it's funny too. I I can't remember. I wish I could remember the player, but uh, there was a player. Uh, I might be on the senior tour now. That said, you know, Greg Norman was a friend of mine. We were pretty good friends. I don't think I'll ever talk to him again. Mm. You know, and, and that's it's amazing, that's isn't it? Happen with it. They're you know, they've some of these people, including Norman and Mickelson are becoming pariahs. Yeah, and Norman especially, uh, largely because he is, well, both of them, but Norman is is running this thing, essentially, and and Mickelson was the first one to really jump in with both feet, the first big name. So, yeah, th- those two guys, I mean, think about their career in the PGA Tour and what they did, and then think of how it's gone for a lot of people you know, in a snap of the fingers. It's amazing. It really is amazing. You know, it's funny. Greg Norman is, is was not particularly uh, well thought of in Canada right now because, I mean, he was a several-time winner of the Canadian Open. And then when he started his up, he said, you know, we're not going to put any of our live against, against put them up against any of the important events on tour. And where, when is the first one? Right up against the Canadian Open. <laughs> thanks, Greg. Yeah, yeah thanks, Greg. Uh, Gary McKay. Long-time golf writer. Appreciate the time, Gary. Thanks for doing this today. Anytime, Scott. Thank you. Very interesting story from some numbers that have just come out about what happened during the pandemic on an economic way. In 2020, household income in this country, after-tax household income in this country, was up considerably. Was up considerably. 9.8% over the last time the census was taken. And a lot of people are now pointing at this saying, well, this is this has got something to do or a lot to do with CERB and with other things that were done during the early days of the pandemic. But the question that some people are asking is, okay, we were trying to help people, but as much as it may sound crazy, did we help people too much? Were we really supposed to be giving people raises or were we just trying to keep them afloat? I want to bring in Ian Lee, associate professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, thank you for joining us as always today. Really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. I'm reading these numbers and I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what to take of this. It, it, did the government overhelp us? If we're making more money by getting handouts than going to work, did they overhelp what they needed to? Um, I've been arguing since approximately June of 2020. Uh, Remember, the pandemic was declared, I believe, it was in March. Everyone will remember that, sometime in March. And uh, sometime around uh, May, June, thereabouts, um, the Prime Minister started to hold a daily press conference in front of Rita Hall. And he was announcing a whole alphabet soup range of program support, CERB, and a whole bunch of other alphabet soup programs. They were all involved in pushing money out the door uh, to individuals. Nobody was opposed to the idea of helping those who needed help, who lost their job. And he argued at the time that the way they were doing it, which was basically creating these crazy websites where, you know, go on this website of the government of Canada, fill in your name and your address and just and tell us your income and we'll send you a check. And I'm not exaggerating very much. There was no checks and balances. In fact, he was criticized at the time. By journalists saying, where are the checks and balances to to deter fraud and people applying for the money that don't qualify or deserve it or need it? And his answer was repeatedly, because I watched those press conferences, and he repeatedly said, look, we're in a crisis. 
there's no alternative. We got to get the money out the door quickly. We're in the middle of a pandemic, a national emergency crisis. I said then, and this evidence data today is proving what I said then and others said then, that what the prime minister said that there was, quote, no other way was simply factually false. Now, some of your listeners may say, boy, oh boy, that's awfully strong. How can you possibly say that, Professor Lee? Really simple. Every one of your listeners, I'm sure, have a family member, a child, maybe a son or a daughter, who's not making very much money, and because they're just fresh out of school or only been working for a few short years, and they're getting a GST rebate check just to them. By the way, I don't get one. I make way too much money, okay? And now they're getting carbon tax rebate checks. Now, that should just jump off right at everybody and say, how in God's name do they know, the government, they know to send the check to that person and not somebody else like Ian Lee? Well, the answer is because there's this pesky little agency in Canada. Uh, It's in Ottawa, actually. You might have heard of it. It's called the Canada Revenue Agency. 31 million people file a tax return every year and tell CRA how much they make. And where you live and your bank account, your SIN number, it is the most awesome database in all Canada, bar none. The banks can only drool at the sight of at the thought of getting access to that data, or even the CSIS, the spy guys. They have the most awesome database. They know everything about us. Whether you own a house, how many children you have, you're married, you're divorced, you're single, your parents are living with you, whatever. So my point is, almost all of our social programs, with the exception of health care itself and old age pension, they're universal. But just about all of our social programs are income tested. Now, how can you test an income to give them support if you don't know their income? Answer, we do know their income. The government does know their income. And so my point is, they could have, from the get-go, said, the prime minister could have said to the minister responsible for Revenue Canada, for CRA, tell your IT bureaucrats that are running the IT system, the software system that does the rebate checks for the GST and the the carbon tax rebate, uh, anybody below, I'll make up a number. $40,000 $40,000 in last year's tax filing, send them a check of $2,000 a month. Just credit their bank account every month, just like a GST rebate check. It could have been done, no fuss, no muss, no bother. Now, let's be clear. There would not have been an alphabet soup of programs, and the prime minister would not have been able to hold a press conference every day announcing yet another alphabet soup program showing and demonstrating his support to all of us. All right. So. So if, if that's if that's the case, if that's the case, and, and I think what you're saying is, you know, a lot of people are nodding their heads right now saying, yeah, if we have that database, why don't we use it? In the last day or two, we had the prime minister um, explaining about the Bank of Canada rate going up and about inflation and everything else. And it was the supply chains. It was the war in Ukraine. It was an inner world inflation. It was this. There was nothing, nothing that he said that had anything to do with anything happening in Canada. But if I'm seeing that we sent out so much money that after tax household income went up 9.8% over a number of years, including that one, can we point to this as part of the reason we flooded the market with so much money? Could this be part of the reason we're facing the inflation we are right now? I am making that argument, but before anybody accuses me of accusing the prime minister of causing the inflation, no, I'm not. 
And what the Prime Minister is doing, he's a bit confusing us. He's, he's being a little bit disingenuous here because he is correct. Inflationary forces are from outside the country. That's true of most, almost, almost all small open economies like Canada. But to leap to the conclusion, as he did, because the drivers, the original drivers are outside the country, he's inferring, hey, there's nothing we can do. That's nonsense. If that's the case, why the hell do we have a Bank of Canada? Get rid of it. There's nothing we can do. That's not true. We have a Bank of Canada not to deal with inflation in Russia or Afghanistan or China. It's to deal with inflation in Canada, even if it came from outside the country. Inflation comes in from outside, higher oil prices, for sure, for sure. But then we, all 38 million or 31 million adults of us, because there's 31 million adults over 18, out of the 38 million Canadians, we individually, every day, go and do things. We buy groceries, we buy gas, or we buy less gas because it's too expensive. So my point is, we are responding to the inflation, and that in the government pushing so much stimulus into the system, no, it didn't cause the inflation, meant it made the inflation worse. It exacerbated the inflation. Let me draw an analogy. Let's say you're really sick, and you got a really bad cold or something like that. I don't think most people, most people would agree that if you're really sick and you're coughing every way like crazy, it's probably not a good thing to go and get drunk that night and drink a bottle of booze or something. You don't want to make your, sick, your sickness worse. Well, what we did by pumping far too much stimulus, untargeted, we didn't target it enough. We squandered scarce resources and we poured gasoline on the fire that we knew had already started internationally with the higher energy prices. In other words, we have been stimulating the inflation, making the inflation worse. We didn't cause it. Mr. Trudeau did not cause it, give him credit, but we made it worse when we did not need to do so. And we Mm. should have, and if somebody says, what should we have done? Uh, In April of 21, when Christy Phelan stood up in the House of Commons and was bragging, properly so, our economy's booming, it's growing at 6%. And then she was still piling on $50 billion of deficit with that stimulus, by the way. She should have announced the end of the stimulus when the economy was booming at 6% and the, all the jobs had been recovered. So what we've been doing since then is making the situation worse in our country with, with deficits that are not necessary because the economy has completely recovered and with interest rates that were too low. And it's the governor of the Bank of Canada who's telling us this. He's saying the rates are too got, low. That's why I'm putting them I got, They should have. Ian, I got to jump in. Though. I got to jump in. Uh, really appreciate the time, though, as always. Great stuff. Really appreciate taking a few minutes. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. I want to bring in Don Fox, uh, executive financial consultant with IG Private Wealth Management, uh, a voice you hear on this radio station a lot. Don, how are you today? Doing very well. How about yourself, Scott? I'm doing pretty well because I don't have any great loans outstanding right now. But I think if I did, I might not be quite as uh, comfortable with the way everything is going these days. I mean, we were talking just at the very top of the show. The interest rates are obviously going to hit people who are looking to buy a house or get into the market right now. But for a lot of people, they're locked in, so it's not as impactful. But there are a lot of other things that people have to borrow money to do. Cars, home renovations, trips, whatever. These are all going to be affected. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly what 
is probably the you know most popular way is a home equity line of credit, which is based on the equity in your house. It's basically a mortgage on your house, except it's now a line of credit. And the nice thing about those is you get a very low interest rate. Generally, a very good one would be prime plus a quarter. Well, that's all great when you know prime rates are 2.45, and then you're now you're paying say 2.7, and we're only talking, you no, know, that's just back in March. You're paying 2.7. Well, now you'd be paying 4.95. So a 2.2% increase, 2.25% increase in a period of, you know, less than six months. Do you think, and I mean, look, you talk to people all day long about their finances. Do, Do you get the sense that our habits are about to change or are people right now saying, yeah, you know what? I know it's more to borrow. I know it call everything costs more, but it'll be over soon and I'll be back to normal. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, you, good point there, Scott. And I, one thing I, I would suggest is people dealing with a financial planner are often on a, on a better path. So they probably haven't overborrowed. They may have locked in when the rates were lower. They, uh, you know, they, they probably are a little bit more conservative. The ones I'm more scared, you know, scared or fearful of are the ones that were right on the skinny branches, borrowing as much as they could, um, winning a bidding war, if you want to call it winning, when they're paying, you know, an extra $250,000 for a house, and they were almost at their limit. Now, you know, those are the ones that all of a sudden, they might have a little bit of buyer's remorse, because they had a rate set in their mind, a payment set in their mind, and now it's starting to cost a lot more, and their lifestyle's taking a hit. So, you know, the discretionary spending is starting to say, okay, well, we can't do this, we can't do that, but we still have a house. So, yeah, it's a you know, depending on which side of the fence you are, as you mentioned, uh, you are low on the low uh, borrowing side, Scott, good for you. So this doesn't inf- affect you, but the ones higher on that, yes, absolutely. It does have an effect. Well, and, and as I say, I mean, look, I don't know, I'm not smart enough to understand. we got someone coming up to talk about the real estate market later in the show. I don't know if these interest rate increases are going to open the market to first-time buyers. I mean, one of the one of the positions that people are saying is, look, it's going to drive the prices down and therefore it makes it more available to first-time buyers. I, I don't know if that's true or if it's offset by the amount that you're now, the extra you're going to have to pay. But everyone, it seems, everyone has to borrow money for something at some time. We're all going to get nailed with this at some point. No question. And, and you know, to that point, I would be, I would far rather be a person looking for a house now with the prices perhaps dropping even further before the year's out. So let's say they go down 20% from the peak. And so now you're borrowing less, but at a higher rate. And I would rather have a smaller debt and a higher payment um, or a higher interest rate. The payments actually might equal. They might actually be the same uh, when when the dust settles, but you don't owe as much. And I think people lose sight of the fact of how much they're they have borrowed. They actually get caught up in the payment per month rather than the actual amount of how much debt do I have? And that's a, And this is where it comes to bear is when you start to interest rates rise and you realize, oh boy, I got a fair bit of debt and it's all vulnerable to the higher interest rates. Yeah. And, and I mean, right now, thankfully, uh, unlike, you know, there's a whole generation that remembers the, what was it, 18%, something like that for <laughs> mortgage? You know, yeah, I'm one of them, Scott. I'm not sure we're in the same age bracket or not, but uh, yes, um, absolutely. I, I was uh, just got out of university during that time. I was a graduate in 85, so it was the early 80s. And, and I, you know, I remember a Canada savings bond at 19%. 
So I wasn't on the borrowing, but I had a little bit of money, like we're talking $1,000 I could put for my summer job and got 19%. But yes, for the ones that were borrowing at that time, absolutely, it was a very difficult time to borrow. And, uh, you know, you could lock up your mortgage at 19% for five mm. years and the, and the one-year mortgage is 21. That being said, though, inflation was 13% then and a little different time. Unemployment was quite high. There was a, it was a, a very significant recession. And we're not really, a lot of those um, boxes aren't checked right now because, you know, they're saying, okay, this recession, where, where do we stand? Well, one of the things is a high unemployment. Well, we got actually probably more than full unemployment. It's very difficult for, for business owners to find a person to hire right now. So that there is actually inflationary, the fact that so many people are working, which is a good thing. But as they increase interest rates, they're, they're trying to lower a few of those boxes to, to in, impact inflation. Increasing interest rates will do part of it, but there's a few other things. Government spending, if they keep spending a lot, that actually is inflationary. And the supply chain, just having a, you know issues with the supply chain is also inflationary. Gas prices, oil, et cetera. So there's, there's more than, you know, it, it's not a direct in, increase in interest rates lowers inflation there's a few other things that also could you know impact inflation that is don fox executive financial consultant with ig private wealth management and a regular on the station don thanks for doing this really appreciate it anytime scott when there's an issue scott is all in on getting to the heart of it this is hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's talk 900 CHML. this is one of the strangest stories that i've heard in a long 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 time a uh, piece in The Spectator today by Fallon Hewitt, who's a great reporter there, pointing out that um, apparently there is a cake and icing shortage in the city of Hamilton. I mean, this is we can talk about all the bad stuff that's going on in the world. There is nothing that is going to create more hassle and more problems than a city of Hamilton not having enough cake and icing. I must say I am totally puzzled by this one, which is why we invited Fallon Hewitt, who wrote this, to come on and join us. Fallon, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I am entirely befuddled by this. <laughs> how? How? Okay, first of all, do we in fact truly have a cake and icing shortage? It would appear as though there is some kind of shortage. Um, <laughs> you know, I found out about this sort of through social media posts and emails that were sent to the spectator. And so I decided to do my own digging because no one could give me like an answer from corporations. So I called like more than a dozen in-store bakeries. And every time I would call to, you know, ask about what I could get for a cake, they had to have like this sort of precursor. Oh, we're not taking orders. We don't have any icing. Oh, we don't have vanilla icing, but we have chocolate. We only have marble cakes, but no vanilla. Like it was uh, every little bakery or every in-store bakery had their own, <laughs> their own issues. So I, I, like, I'm not a baker. Thankfully, my, you know, my wife loves the kitchen. This is not about, you know, keeping her in the kitchen. She, this is her choice. She loves it and she does the baking, thankfully. So I don't know what I'm talking about, but there's not that many ingredients in making icing or cake, is there? I mean, this shouldn't be that difficult. Yeah, I don't think there's too many ingredients. What, eggs, flour, oil or butter? Sugar. Sugar. <laughs> I'll admit I don't bake too many homemade cakes. I'm a box cake kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were until now. Um, but 
but I so it, this is obviously a case then where a lot of these grocery stores they don't bake their own cakes; they bring them in. I'm guessing that's the only explanation. Then they must have them shipped ready to go almost, and they're just not getting them here from the supplier. Yeah, that's what it kind of sounded like. Because a few of the workers told me, "Oh, we're having issues getting certain cakes from the warehouse." And from what I understand, there are some food supply companies that they sell pre-baked cakes that can last in the freezer for 365 days, one of those companies being Rich's. And yeah, they can be just customized and iced in store. So that's what it kind of sounded like to me. Like some of these places, they could give you a round cake, but they couldn't give you like the classic slab cake that you would see at like, you know, a kid's birthday party (laughs) or a 50th anniversary like they can only give you something that would feed 12, not 26, you know? What what I'm truly, I, I, as you were talking, all I could think is I must find the cake warehouse. Where the, the secret cake warehouse, where all the cake, this is, I mean, it sounds very much like something from the cartel down in Colombia. Uh, slightly different, I understand, but there's this secret warehouse where they make all the cakes for this area and they all come from there. It's, it's very, it's all very cloak and dagger and very intriguing. I just, uh, so, so you can get a round cake, but not a square cake. I, I, again, anybody able to say why certain shape, certain shapes are available and other shapes aren't that it makes it even weirder. Yeah, there was no real sort of answer that I could get without, you know, as being an inquiring customer, um, (laughs) you know, I couldn't get really any sort of explanation except for mostly to do with the warehouse. And then one business did say, oh, like, like, uh, I think it was Sobeys. They said, oh, if one Sobeys doesn't have something, it's most likely that none of us will have something because we all get it from the same place. So, yeah, it's. It's a little odd, and I don't know what the shape issue is. I, I, <laughs> that's weird. Any sense? <laughs> that's yeah, weird. Like, if there's great demand, it. if there's great demand for a slab cake, why not just pour the stuff into a square or rectangle one as opposed to a round? Like, I, it, it it's it, there must be some great explanation, but um, I'm not quite seeing it. So, is this then? Uh, going to lead. There are places, and I mean, you point out in your story that I guess Costco, as always, I mean, it's still, you could go to Costco, but some people don't want to go to Costco. They've got the reasons, I guess, or they want something more more custom or more whatever yeah. else. So th- they are around. It's not like it's, it's not a complete shortage. You could mm-hmm. find it. You just can't necessarily find it everywhere. Like everything's kind of like not every store is affected the same, it seems. Like some places were like, yeah, we can take your order, but like, you know, certain parameters and other places are like flat out no. <laughs> so it like it does take a bit of uh, calling around. Like I spent, I don't know, maybe an hour calling different places and posing as someone wanting a cake and <laughs> inquiring. Do we know if, like, again, I'm trying to look at the ingredients here and trying to remember if any of those ingredients, if we've had shortages because of supply chain, there's none of them that strike me as there's not been a sugar shortage or there's not been a milk shortage or a butter. Like, there's nothing on there that would explain this, right, that I'm missing? Not that I can think of, but it could be something maybe related to um, worker shortages or it could be something to do with production, like, it could be like a host of different things um, mm. just because it seems to be happening maybe at the at the supply end, not the grocery store end. So it could be or maybe because there's so many things happening now, maybe they can't keep up with the amount of cakes that they need. I don't know because we're coming back well, to like, you know, normal life. People are having parties. You never know. Like maybe there's just a huge like 
bunch of people that run on cakes, cakes and they, and yeah. they can't a huge run on cakes. Yes. Cause they haven't been making the same amount of cakes. I'm presuming for the last, you know, two years, no one's been able, unless you're eating a slab cake, like no judgment, but <laughs> by yourself, just sitting at home that like after you eat one of those, what do you call those Hamilton pizzas? Everyone's going to kill me for not knowing oh, the Roma. name. Just the, Roma pizza. Thank you. Just a Roma pizza. You go to the slab cake. It just one follows after the other. Uh, Fallon Hewitt reporter with the Hamilton spectator. You can find her piece at the spec.com. It's actually, it's a very, very funny piece. Hamilton grocery stores face shortage of cake and icing, but the reason why remains a mystery. Go look it up. Uh, Fallon, thanks for taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. Thanks Scott. Take care. <laughs> Coming up, more of Hamilton Today right after this. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It was just very recently that our housing market here in Hamilton and other places, but especially here, was just going crazy. I mean, you could not find a house that would stay up for sale for any period of time. If you found one that was of any reasonable price, you were almost certainly going to be caught into a bidding war. You probably would have to buy that house for more than you expected with no conditions and then hope and pray that everything was. I mean, look, it was a tough, tough, tough market. Well, inflation and interest rate rises and all the rest, things are changing a little bit under our feet. In fact, things are changing more than a little bit. There are now those saying that we are we are looking at a housing market that is um, if not the if the brakes are not being slammed, it is certainly slowing considerably. I want to bring in Mike Heddle. He's a broker with Royal LePage State Realty in Hamilton and joins us now. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on again. It's, it's great to chat with you. This is a um, and thank you for doing it. I really appreciate it. Um, this is, I guess, a good news, bad news story. I suppose the good the the bad news is if you were a seller who was looking to sell your place. Uh, you've probably missed your moment, right? I mean, now let's start there. If you were hoping for top dollar, that moment is probably gone now, right? Yeah, absolutely. We we often in real estate, when we talk about statistics, we, we report in kind of lagging metrics. And the ship has sailed the February and, and March, uh, what I, I will often refer to as kind of an irrational market. Um, that, that ship has sailed. We had very low levels of inventory. And, and you talked about this in your intro. Um, we were seeing about 30 properties listed uh, uh, per week in in Hamilton, uh, where, you know, as we got into April and May and June, we're, we're now up to about 400 listings per week. So we're seeing more homes come onto the market, uh, which has, has started that shift to give buyers more options. Um, and then, as, as you kind of suggested, you know, we've got a number of economic factors at play, primarily driven by, by inflation uh, and rising interest rates to follow that have seemed to cool our market. Um, you know, we, we use some language such as, you know, a freezing market, and I think it's healthy. <laughs> you, you know, it was irrational when buyers had to spend 50 or 100 or $200,000 over asking um, with, with no conditions. And, and this, uh, this seems to be a little bit more healthy, um, despite seeing prices uh, having fallen um, from that February and, and March timeframe. Mike, if people are knowing they're not going to get the same prices, why are all of a sudden so, so many more people than putting their houses up for sale right now? That doesn't seem to make an awful lot of logical sense. You'd think they would hold on and hope that maybe in a few months this turns again. I, I think that, you know, I, I think sometimes 
uh, you know, depends who the seller is. So if, if the seller is perhaps an investor that's looking to, you know, capitalize on, on rising rates or rising prices, and, and, you know, we're still sitting about 12% higher uh, from an average price than we were a year ago, um, it's just we, we've really pulled back and, and cooled off um, from that from that spring market. And, and Royal Page, uh, who as we put our data out, you know we we try to keep our finger on the pulse and, and adjust accordingly. Uh, late last year, we were predicting prices to be up about ten percent by the end of twenty two. Um, I think I was on your your show in the spring saying we're going to revise that. We're probably going to be up about fifteen percent, but by the end of the year, uh, and here we're. Still Stepping in again and saying, okay, the market's cooled. You know, I think we're going to land about five percent, uh, you know, uh, price appreciation uh, when you look at a year over year by the end of twenty-two. Okay, so we said good news, bad news. We've talked about the bad <laughs> news. If you're a seller, this is not ideal for you. But if you're a buyer, where we were talking about this with Don Fox a few moments ago, financial planner, where's the balance? Because you're going to pay more in interest rates. But if prices are coming down, that would seem to open the market up, and especially if there's more houses on the market. So if you're looking to get into the market, is it is it a good news story? You know, I, I think what you're making, I, I think it is a good news, and it certainly depends on, on what side of the fence you sit on. If you're a regular homeowner, like most of us are, and you're looking to make a move for, you know, needs requirements, because housing forms part of our fundamental need. You know, I need a bigger home because I've had a couple of kids and we just need more space, et cetera. Um, it can be a great time to move up despite, you know, being selling for perhaps a little bit more, you're going to be able to make that difference up on the purchase side. I, I think the good news and kind of the silver lining here is we can act in a rational behavior, making conditions and offers, making sure that, you know, we've got our financial budget uh, in order and, and that affordability falls within, uh, you know, our, our household budgets. So I, I think this more balanced market is actually uh, a better marketplace for us to be in, um, you know, for, for the long term, uh, or, you know, many years from now or months from now, we'll be, we'll be happy that we, we fell through this low. And one more then, because if you are a regular, I think that was the word used, a home buyer, an average <laughs> home buyer, or homeowner, pardon me. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing. What if you are just trying to get in? Is it is it really any easier right now or have the interest rates offset the reduction in the cost? Yeah, that, that's been a conversation that we've talked about for quite some time. Um, you know, with the growing populace of millennials, uh, you know, we're going to see increased uh, uh, immigration. So, you know, and certainly in the, the Golden Horseshoe area, which we live in in, in Hamilton, um, you know, home ownership is, is the Canadian dream. Um, I think it's a good opportunity for first-time buyers to, you know, get into the marketplace despite prices are, are still higher than they were last year or, or two years ago. Um, I, I think, you know, something that we need to be aware of is this slight shift in this marketplace. It, it's really important for policymakers to not mistake um, our housing crisis to have been solved, which is really like a supply issue. We still don't have enough homes to, to support the needs, you know, of growing Canadians and, and growing home ownership. So, you know, there, there's a little bit of, of underlying there and, and caution there that I think has to have some wherewithal. There was a piece um, in the spec the other day that was looking at, uh, Steve Buse wrote it, um, and it was looking at people, where the people are coming from that are moving to the city. And we've talked about this for a long time. And the the assumption has always been downtown Torontonians who are tired of being just, bat, you know, just destroyed by prices. Now look at Hamilton and say, look how cheap it is. Well, it turns out that 
Steve's looking into the census numbers and everything else found that's not exactly the case. What we're seeing, some of those for sure, but a lot of suburbanites moving to Hamilton suburbs, Ancaster, Dundas, Flamborough, Glenbrook, Stony Creek, not interested necessarily in Hamilton's downtown. You talk about the, the availability. There's a lot of condos that are either being built or going to be built downtown. Do is that where people want to go? Are we is that going to solve the supply issue or is that just going to be a lot of people saying that's great that they're there? That's not what I'm after. Yeah, I, I think back to, to being a Mac student 20 years ago and, and living down on Bay Street and, and seeing kind of the investment that we saw in our core. Uh, and it's been a slow progress. Uh, you know, I, I think with restrictions that we've got surrounding the green belt um, and and uh, um, urban expansions, you know, I think it's got to be. I think you know, there's big investment being made in infrastructure downtown. Um, you know, it's it's a slow process to see that rejuvenation, but you know, there's there's so much that our city downtown has to offer. And I'm a, a lifetime Hamiltonian and live in Dundas. Uh, but still, you know, I think our downtown still has a, a ton to offer. So, you know, I think that is still the solution um, is is increased density, um, you know, having the infrastructure that supports it. Um, I, I didn't see the piece in the spectator, but I, I know that I, I read our last um, anticipation of, of immigration or newcomers. And, and that's been increased. Like we're, we're looking at about one point two million newcomers into this country uh, over the next three years. Um, and they tend to land in those metropolises, you know, Toronto mm-hmm. uh, and outliers. May not be low prices for all that long is uh, is something there, if they are even considered low now. L- low, relatively speaking, I guess, Mike. Uh, Mike Heddle, broker and real- with the Royal LePage State Realty in Hamilton. Mike, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having me on. 35% of the 506 re- six respondents, we're talking about PSWs and nurses and healthcare aides and porters and workers and maintenance and pretty much anyone who's in the hospital. 35% of the 506 respondents say they experience physical violence at least once a week. 50% say they experience non-physical violence, name calling, people screaming at them, whatever else. 26% of those say they experience it daily and 37% say they experience sexual harassment such as comments or gestures at least once a week. This is... What is going on? Like, surely this is not normal. Let me bring in Sharon Richer, representative of the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions. She joins us now. Sharon, thanks for the time today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, Let me ask you that question. What is going on? Because this just, this doesn't sound like normal behavior. Well, unfortunately, it it is definitely normal behavior. Um, for the last 10 years, O2, uh, the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions of QB, has been reporting, um, you know, uh, violence in hospitals. And certainly our members have been speaking to us um, during the period of the pandemic, and they've been reporting, uh, you know, higher numbers of violence, uh, certainly the rates that you were reading off. Um, and, uh, you know, it is very alarming to us that this is happening uh, inside the walls of the Hamilton Hospital. You said over the last 10 years. So some people might have said, oh, this is a COVID thing because everybody was on edge from COVID. This is this is not just a COVID scenario then. But this particular poll was uh, taken absolutely uh, during the period of COVID. We uh, polled our members asking them if they have seen an increase uh, during the pandemic, and it has absolutely increased. 
Now, part of the problem, obviously, uh, is uh, COVID. Um, patients, you know, coming into the emergency department, having to wait for beds, uh, they're frustrated in receiving or uh, receiving care, certainly in hallways. Um, you know, loved ones not being able to get in to see their members during COVID. There was a period of time when hospitals were restricting uh, visitors um, and they were frustrated. But this comes at a, at a time where unprecedented um, staffing shortages are absolutely happening also. So we're seeing, you know, family members are concerned about the quality of care that their loved ones are seeking, um, you know, with this per- unprecedented staff shortages that have been happening uh, through the pandemic. All right. So let's take some of these numbers then and, and with what you're saying, because I'm not endorsing it by any stretch, but I could understand why somebody who might come in and have a family member or themselves might be frustrated and might say something in anger to a staff person. Again, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I'm saying I can understand that. What I don't understand, though, is that let's take that out of the mix. You've now still got 35% say they are having physical violence done to them. And 37% are having sexual harassment. 15% say they're being sexually groped. I mean, take out the anger and frustration. This is still something that I just can't wrap my head around why the other stuff would be happening. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, it's been happening for a decade where our staff, our members are are saying that these are happening. Um, They go into rooms where patients are frustrated. Um, You know, they grab them, they scratch them. Um, many times they've gotten hot coffee thrown on them, um, you know, uh, with unprecedented, uh, you know, shortages of mental health within the community. Um, people are coming to the emergency department seeking um, medical care for uh, mental health issues, you know, and they're um, acting and lashing out against staff members, grabbing them by their arms, um, throwing hot coffee at them. Uh, you know, anything that they can grab, a chair. Um, and these are the things that are very alarming. Um, and, you know, it's showing hor- horrific rates of uh, workplace violence within hospitals. All right. Let me ask you that because you brought up a really interesting point that I, it really hadn't dawned on me, and I'm glad you did. Is there any kind of built in asterisk or something in these numbers for mental health because i'm not sure that someone who is suffering through a mental health break can be blamed necessarily for some of these behaviors even though it's not good for the staff is there any way to know how many of these people are in that category and how many are just misbehaving um no our poll didn't um, break down um that kind of aspect but let, let me talk about things that we can do um, you know, uh, certainly the provincial government, the hospitals can do to ensure that uh, staffing shortages um, are looked after. Um, many of our many of our staff are working by themselves. Um, you know, and you can imagine if you are busy with one patient and another patient's ringing their buzzer and wondering why you're not coming immediately. Um, so, you know, we're asking the uh, federal government to actually staff these hospitals. Um, to, you know, to ensure um, that, you know, they're not working alone, that there are people there to answer the buzzers. And we're also asking the, the government to, um, you know, fund the hospitals accordingly um, so that there are beds for people, that they're not being taken care of in a hallway 
or, you know, beside an elevator where there are people coming and going, they are actually, um, you know, being able to have privacy within within a room. Um, and those are the things that we can do, like, immediately to kind of combat the problem that is happening. And, you know, we're, I- we're asking hospitals to um, ensure that there's uh, a zero-tolerance policy and the policy is acted on when patients are lashing out um, towards staff. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. We only have a few seconds left here. But even if you put in a zero tolerance policy, I'm imagining that you would not have legal recourse to kick someone out of a hospital who was needing treatment. So what do you do? Well, you ensure that there's adequate staff for people to go in. So there's not just one person. There's a, there's a team that is able to go in and provide care. Um, to these patients that are are needing care and that, you know, um, might have a potential of, you know, acting out in violence. It's a, uh, it, it's a story worth reading. You can find it at thespec.com. There is a story, Poll Reveals Jump in Experiences of Workplace Violence at Hamilton Hospitals. Uh, that is Sharon Richer, who has been talking to us, representative from the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions. Sharon, thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. No, thank you. As far as legacy, not sure that Prime Minister Trudeau is going to love the legacy that this poll suggests, which is, among other things, a majority of Canadians say that he has been divisive and has picked favorites in this country, picked favorite groups and geographic areas, and this country is worse off than when he came to power. That's not exactly what you want on your political epitaph. Andrew Enns is Executive VP at Leger's Winnipeg office who joins us now. Andrew, thank you for the time today. I really appreciate it. Really happy to be on your program. So is this the inevitable um, outcome of being in office for a certain period of time that every politician in time becomes less and less popular until they're essentially forced out and that's just where we are right now? You know, I think there is there is something to, you know, longevity starts to, uh, as they say, breed a little contempt and, and maybe, uh, you know, and, and, and issues start to to uh, pile up and, and good politicians can uh, can do well by not collecting too many bad issues and, and too much on the on the too much bad reputation and and can uh, can withstand. Uh, yeah, I think of a of a Brad Wall in, in my part of the world, Western Canada, he sort of seemed to get through a, a pretty long tenure in, in one piece. But but by and large, it does get challenging for, for elected officials as they get into that second mandate. Um, maybe the bar gets set a little higher by the voters as well in terms of expectations. What I was most surprised by, and it's not by a big amount, but I thought, oh, okay, well, when you break down where in the country this is going to those anti-Trudeau feelings are going to be strongest. Guaranteed, it's going to be Alberta, not Alberta. Now, they weren't far off. Dislike for Trudeau was strongest in BC, Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Alberta and Quebec were just a couple percentage points behind. 60% in those three, uh, 58% in Alberta and Quebec. Uh, You know, again, uh, the fact that there is now this dislike, we knew Alberta didn't like him. We knew Saskatchewan, just look at the, at the, the elections where the whole the province was blue. We knew that, but BC and Quebec turning like this, I was a little surprised by. Yeah, that actually caught my, uh, caught my attention too. Um, you know, and, and not just because it, it, a, you know, we didn't see it coming as opposed to say Alberta and, and, and uh, the prairies, as you noted, 
but also that um, sure we're we're a couple of years out from an election, but still those are important places for the Liberal Party, um, for any party, quite frankly, when when an election does happen. BC has a lot of seats, as does Quebec, and and so certainly um, you know I think that is something that they'll want to uh, you know that that's probably a little disconcerting. Let me ask you that then. So we, yes, we are we are out from an election probably three years now because of that alignment between the NDP and the Liberals. But we've seen uh, around here in provincial politics when a leader stays on right till the end and that leader becomes unpopular, whoever ends up carrying the bag in the next election gets obliterated. We saw actually we saw it with Kim Campbell after true after Mulroney. Uh, we saw it here in Ontario with the Liberals. If Christian Freeland, if the Liberals now are trying to groom Christian Freeland as the successor, and that seems to be the case, would they be better off to ask the leader, ask Trudeau right now, get out now so we have some time to create some separation because clearly there's some dislike. And if you wait till the end, she's going to carry all that baggage of yours. Well, yeah, you, you touched on some examples and, and um, you know, it, it can be challenging, you uh, Either the the existing leader has a has a, a deliberate plan to to change to change the trajectory they're on and and uh, and that works. We asked in our poll, you know, we asked what Canadians felt uh, you know would be the best course of action, and we found forty nine percent of Canadians said that he should resign before the next election and a new leader uh, you know be selected. So I think they're you know to the scenario that you talked about with uh, Miss Freeland or who or whoever um there is a bit of an appetite um you know amongst Canadians that maybe maybe it's time that uh, there was some change at the top um even amongst uh, you know and it's interesting i mean a lot of these questions break as one would expect on on partisan lines um but even among liberal voters 19% 2 and 2 and 10 of, of liberal voters thought that it would be uh, the right course of action for the prime minister to resign before the next election and have a new leader uh, in place. Well, it, it, it seems, Andrew, as though if you wait too long, as I say, you're whoever then picks it up, it, you're no longer, it's not you, you're just connected to that person. Like there's no chance to make your own case for why you should be the leader. And, and I imagine it's, if you're the prime minister, it's probably very on a step away. Cause again, if you've got these numbers and you're concerned, concerned with your legacy, you want to fix it. I just, it, it seems as though you may be setting it up for disaster. Well, it, you know, it, 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 I would say it is a challenge and, and I'll, and I'll, um, you know, I think I made this comment to somebody else, but you know, one, one could, could perhaps make a case that the pandemic, um, you know, the further we get away from the pandemic and some of those, uh, you know, policy decisions, some of those policy decisions, not overly popular, um, but, but made out of the necessity for public health, the further we get away from those, that perhaps there's an opportunity for the, for the prime minister to rehabilitate the, uh, the image. Unfortunately for, for him and for the government, for the country, we're, our post-pandemic uh, environment is, we're finding is actually, in some respects, even more challenging for us as Canadians with high inflation. And, and now we have uh, you know, a fairly significant spike in interest rates and, and, you know, international issues in terms of war with Ukraine. So all of a sudden, you know, the, the road ahead that you hoped you'd, you'd see as smooth sailing post pandemic looks, man, I'd almost say uh, as challenging as the pandemic itself. Just for 
you go because we're short on time. To your recollection, has there been a long-term prime minister that has not faced something like this in their later years in power? Well, you'd, um, I think you'd have to go back. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, Jean Chrétien did catch the, uh, you know, the tail end of the sponsorship scandal, but I always felt that he he did a fairly reasonable job of, of maintaining a pretty steady, uh, pretty steady uh, course. I mean, you know, Mr. Mulroney before him, uh, you know, he, he was in big trouble and he kind of characterized your scenario. So it's, it's very, it's very challenging, right? It's very, very challenging. That is Andrew Enns, Executive VP at Leger's Winnipeg office. You can read the uh, read about this polls in the National Post and a number of other places uh, about the challenges that the Prime Minister is facing when you ask people about the job he's doing and whether he is divisive or not. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate you jumping in. Yeah, I appreciate it, Scott. As a public service, we have tried here at CHML to do all we can to keep this next man off the airwaves. We retired him. We, we He just will not go away. Ted Michaels is stepping in tomorrow. I'm off. Ted Michaels, the retired father of the bride as of this weekend. Yep. Deep fryer on Facebook posing yep. with his air fryer. Yes. Uh, we've tried everything, Ted, but you will not go away. Well, you know, I, I subs. I want to be just like you because I retired. I didn't have any type of a uh, sponsorship deal. I just heard the spot for a Radley chainsaw. Very impressive. Congratulations. Yes. And, and lawnmowers. Very, <laughs> very, <laughs> lost two toes to a lawnmower. Now they name one after me. It's a little very late good. for that. Very good. I, I, you know, true story, Ted, I did send it. So the Radley chainsaw, uh, Radley chainsaws and lawnmowers are only available through one hardware chain. I sent a, an email to them saying, is there any way to get some swag? I'd love to wear a Radley lawnmower. It'd be very ironic. Um, but I think when you point out that you've lost toes to a lawnmower, I'm the worst person to be an advertiser for that. Yeah, that that would that would not be good. And I'm sure one day you can regale the audience with that story. But I don't think we have time. No, but uh, now maybe you want to regale the audience. Which which story would you like to regale the audience with for you? The one of you posing very excitedly with your air fryer, yes, or the one of you. Um, I would. I'm not sure if I call it dancing in the background at your daughter's wedding. Look very beautiful. Your daughter is dancing. Her new husband is dancing, and yes. Ted is. What would you call your movement? I, I, I'm just a social gadfly. I'm a bon vivant. I, I go where the, the motion takes me. Well, whatever emotions I feel at the time is what I do. So if I feel like, you know, dancing around and waving my hands in the air, this is what I do. So, you know, uh, you know the, the, the tuxedo people were raving about how, how good it made me look. And I tell people, you know, it's an all-day project with me. So I want to thank those folks for uh, taking care of me. But, yeah, it, it was a nice wedding, and uh, everything's good. Your daughter, I will tell you, your daughter was a beautiful bride looking Thank at the you. photos. And uh, yet you, uh, you you, and Mrs. Michaels, you did well. Let's put it that way. You did well. Uh, yeah. Uh, both, both of their uh, daughters take after their mother mercifully. <laughs> All right. So um, you, um, by the way, the other thing is it was pointed out to me earlier in the show today. We talked about the fact that there is a cake shortage in the city of Hamilton. And yes. looking at the looking at the photos and everything, I think I understand where the shortage happened from. This wedding may have cleaned out the inventory from the central warehouse. Well, there was.
was some wedding cake left. I wouldn't go that far. But yeah, that's you know that's, that's a sad story. You know, it's a sad story. Just as long as there's no no um, uh, shortage of other baked goods. Um, you know, cakes okay. I, I I can kind of take them or, or leave them depending on the um, uh, the the style of them, as it were. But if there's a cupcake shortage at one particular place that I go to because I'm a bit of a cupcake snob, then I'm going to be really upset. Well, and, you know, City of Hamilton, be alert. If there is ever a pierogi shortage, Ted uh, will be on the warpath. Absolutely, and it's it's been quite a while, so thank you. I may have to go shopping after I get off the air tomorrow night. Uh, program notice you mentioned. I'm on the air from 3 to 6 tomorrow and all next week for Scott, who's on, uh, I think he's in overseas somewhere. No, 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 not all. I'll be on the lake, but I will not be overseas. No, no, I, will I, be, um, I met Scott Thompson, like, like you're, you're, you're off next week, so I'm filling in for you, who's filling in for Scott. So what that means is it's third, third man down. Never mind next man up, it's who, who's out there we can get. So. Well, I, I kid about trying to get you off the air. We love it when you come back here. And, and, you know, now that you're retired and, you know, nothing to do, I say, with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek, knowing that you have many things on the go. It's, it's OK, good. Let's 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 keep him sharp. Let, let's keep him on the ball and keep his uh, his radio chops up there because, uh, you know, they don't let you do the fifth quarter anymore. I'd love to hear you do the fifth quarter again. I think I think, Ted, you I think you have reached the level of age and crankiness and curmudgeonliness that a, a loss you would be just perfect to just eviscerate the entire situation. I, I want to hear that again. Really, here's the word of the day, really acerbic, you know, because it seems to me the way the team is playing all on four. I mean, I, I actually... <laughs> I mean, I mean, I didn't laugh, but I was smiling at some of the calls Rick got last week after they lost. Uh, so I'm just... <laughs> I Should they lose on Saturday... I think I'll oh my. the other word of the day, Scott. I think I'll be chortling through the entire show because I know what he, what he's going to go through. It's going to be the quarterback. It's going to be the coach. It's going to be all these people going down the line with suggestions on what to do, but no suggestions on how to replace it. So, so they will be at their orneryurst, if that's such a word, um, Saturday after uh, the Tiger Cat game. If they lose, oh, they be- they better win. They better win because you know I, I feel poor Rick. Poor Rick Zamper. And Rick is a Rick is an innocent, a sweet, innocent, naive kind of fellow. And some of the words and the, the language and the anger that he may hear through the radio from people, both sober and with some liquid refreshment coursing through their veins um you know rick's ears might bleed that could be ugly if they lose to the unbeat to the un to the winless pardon me ottawa red blacks who don't even have a proper quarterback oh man well oh man let's put it this way the one thing that i learned hosting fifth quarter not that i wish ill on, on anybody a tiger cat loss makes a better show and if they continue to lose (laughs) <laughs> records could could be broken that's all i'm saying that's all i'm, I'm not saying they're going to win i'm not saying they're going to lose i'm just saying you know calls where they say i want to congratulate the team okay fine whatever that's their job to to win but a loss <laughs> makes it a much well, more interesting program now that you're back on the air with some regularity doing tomorrow and the rest of the week and you're yeah. you know you're on top of everything maybe if they do lose you want to drop into the station and double team with Rick because you may need two hosts to handle the fury that will yeah, and, that. and if they win everyone can celebrate and all is right with the world again and they're you know back in the playoff hunt so we'll, well see but I, I, we, I don't want to step on Rick's shoes Rick, Rick's done a great job of taking over so you know I'm, I'm kind of let him um, 
feel his own way, so to speak, which he's been doing. And I'm I'm more than happy just sitting at home and, uh, you know, as I say, where the coffee is warm, the beer is cold, and there's no washroom line. So I much prefer this. You could stand in the background and dance the way you did at your daughter's wedding, and you wouldn't even be noticed. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. That is Ted Michaels. We love Ted Michaels. Ted will be back hosting from 3 till 6 tomorrow and yes. all next week. Ted, thanks for jumping in for a few minutes today. We just wanted to let people know so they can plan accordingly. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Folks, thank you for being here today. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to Will for lining everything up, for Tom for keeping us on the air. They do an amazing job. Uh, Yeah, Ted will be here tomorrow. It'll be fantastic. He's already got a great show. They already have a bunch of stuff. You will want to be here at 3 o'clock. Have yourself a great day. We will talk to you soon. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.